Paul has already touched on this topic, but it's so important. It, it's, a, it's a subject that comes up over and over again, and it'll come up in your life. Um, Christians argue about it. And that question is a nagging question. Will you make it? You know, will you make it all the way through? You started out as a Christian, will you end as a Christian? We see on the news all the time, don't we? Uh, Christian artists, Christian music artists uh, that fall away. They're, quote-unquote, deconstructing their faith, <laughs> de deconstructing their religion. Um, you maybe have friends or family that started out strong. They taught you the Bible. They were excited. They evangelized, and then, and then they didn't make it. And you ask yourself, man, will, will I make it? Will I make it to the end? And you remember back at the top of chapter 8, Paul says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some Christians take that. There's no condemnation right now. But if I mess up or if something happens or things go the wrong way, condemnation might come back into my life. Right? Other Christians would say, no, no, what Paul means is there's no condemnation now, today, tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next month. What if this happens or that happens? No condemnation. And what I want to make plain to you today, I hope, is that Romans 8 communicates the second one, not the first one. That there is no condemnation at all into the future. And here's why. If you write in your Bibles, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool to write in your Bibles, okay? It's all right. But if you have a little space in your margin, you write in your Bibles. Here's, here's Romans 8, especially this last portion. We will be, we Christians, will be all God wants us to be in Christ because God wills it. We will be everything God wants us to be in Christ because God wills it, period. Join me at uh, Romans chapter 8. We'll pick up right where we left off last week, and that'll be right at verse 28. Let's look at those first two verses, 28 and 29. He just finished talking about the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit witnesses that we're in. The Spirit witnesses inside of us that we're a part of this. We have this outside witness of obedience. The obedience proves that we're in. The question now is, do we stay in? That's what he turns to now. And in verse 28, he says, and we know, honestly, I, I, I don't want to just read three words at a time and preach, but just, can I just pause for a second. I feel like I can preach those three words for the next half hour. Do you know it? Which, which does Paul want as a product of the Christians reading Romans 8? To walk away going, we kind of know for now, but you just don't know tomorrow. Or does he want you to actually know there's no condemnation now? Everything that follows is knowing in that second sense, knowing for sure. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're going to pause there for a couple of minutes because there's a lot of big words in here. There's a lot of words that Christians debate. If you're newer to Christianity, some of these words, you're like, what in the world? I don't understand what's going on here. Um, and we're going to unpack some of those things, but I don't want to unpack it in such minute details that we lose the sense of the argument. So again, 
however specific we get with any of these words, any of these clauses, the overall argument is you, the Christian, will be forever. Now, going forward, everything God wants you to be in Christ because God wills it, and that's why you can know it. Now, here's what he is arguing just in these first two verses, verses 28, uh, or verse uh, 27 and 28, or 28 and 29, I'm sorry. Um, I'm thinking of 27 because this is important. He just told us in 27, the Spirit prays for you, the Spirit intercedes for you. That's why you're going to make it. You remember that from last week. You're going to make it. Uh, you're going to have everything you need to keep going because the Spirit prays it when you don't know what to pray for. See, there are times where you're too weak to keep your Christianity going. You don't know how, what to ask God. You don't even know how to pray. All you can do is struggle with the groaning. The Spirit steps in with his own groaning, except in his groaning, he knows what to pray for from God. And what the Spirit asks of God, the Spirit gets. Why? Because the Spirit is God. The Spirit knows the mind of God. The Spirit has the mind of God. So the Spirit always prays according to God's will. What is that will? That's what Paul answers now. God's will is to work all things together for good, for those who are called according to purpose. He doesn't do it for everybody. He, he does it for those who are called according to his purpose. His will is to uh, predestine you to be conformed. His will is for you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's his will. And we get hung up many times on what's God's will for my life, for this month, for this year, for this financial decision, for this other thing, and that's a lot of stuff we've got to work through. But we shouldn't have up in the air this grand purpose and this grand will that God has made clear. God wills for you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But what if A, B, and C happen? All things, God takes them, works them together for that ultimate good. Now, all that Paul is saying here, all the things that he has here, really are three ways of saying the same thing. God takes an action towards the believer, and because God takes that action toward the believer, God delivers that believer to a certain place. And he does that three times uh, just in these short verses here. Check it out. It says, for those who love God, what does God do? What's the action he does towards them? He works all things in their life, all their experiences, all the things that happen, he works all things together for what? For some ultimate good. It might not feel good in the moment, but there's an ultimate good that even the bad things you experience, he works it together. It's like one of those cooking shows where the chef shows up and has random ingredients, and he's so skilled, he still produces something good. It might be leftovers or ingredients you didn't think had anything to do with each other. A lot of these cooking show challenges that they do, you're like, whoa, Octopus legs, whoa, you know, spiders. Like, I don't know what they throw in there. And the chefs flex their skill by still being able to present something that's awesome on a dish. And Paul is saying God takes all things, the good things, the bad things, the challenging things, the things that make you question, the things that make you wonder, the things that are difficult to experience. He just talked about suffering in the previous verses. He takes even that, even the things that make you suffer, and he works it together for a destination. He does it for the believer to get them to a place that is a good place. And then he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. What's the action he takes towards the believer? He calls them. 
And what does he call them to? To deliver them to this destination that is his purpose. We're still not sure what's good, and we're still not sure what the purpose is, and then he clarifies it in the third iteration. Again, God takes an action towards a believer. He predestines them. And then what's the destination? Conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the destination. Many Christians struggle. Uh, and many supposed Christians, they bounce on the faith, right? They leave. And oftentimes the reason is, God allowed this suffering in my life, and I'm so sick of Christians saying, he works it together for good. I don't see the good. The problem is, they think the good means now, tomorrow. The struggle means that this month, this struggle this month means that next month is going to be better. That's not what it says. That pain might not go away in this life. But in that pain... You're conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God wants, and ultimately, that's what the Christian wants. I wonder if those people who worship tomorrow and worship the comfort of next week are really Christians. That's not what the Bible teaches. Works all things together for good. Good means something very specific there. And all things encompasses the pain. (laughs) And so rather than trying to unpack, why am I experiencing pain right now? How does it work? Exactly how does it? Does it drive you to prayer? Does it drive you to dependence on God? Does it remind you of how weak and fragile and frail you are? And it drives you to take all your anxieties and cast it on God because he's at hand. Philippians 4. That is what God is doing in your life. It's not a mystery. God's not up there like, you just have to guess. We don't have to guess. Paul says he's working all those things toward conformity to Christ. The problem is non-Christians don't want that. <laughs> they want something else. This is why God told, or Jesus told Paul no about the thorn in his side. He's like, no, I'm conforming you. I mean, he told him. If you didn't have this thorn in your flesh, you'd be uh, quite arrogant, Paul. Quite arrogant. And I want to stay that. I want to keep that at bay. And this pain in your life is going to help with that. I want you to look more like Christ, not less like Christ. So Paul reveals that. God takes this action toward believers, and when God takes that action, he delivers it. Um, we, we love that we have tracking apps now for FedEx and UPS, and we're like, where's the package? It's at this station. Where is it? We got ring doorbell to see that the guy come. We freak out because we know they sometimes end up at the wrong doorstep. The, the guy, it fell off the truck. We don't know what happened to it. We're paranoid about the destination of the delivery. We know it was ordered. We just don't trust that the company can get it to my front door. Now, what kind of delivery man is God? An incompetent one, a so-so one. He, he kind of handles the packages. He's not sure what the address is. What God wills, he gets three times in a row. He does this toward the believer to deliver them there. And he's already uh, uh, thinking about objections. What about the bad things in my life? All things. And he works it together for his purpose. You remember in Joseph's story, when, his, uh, when the father died and his brothers who had done all these evil things to him, now Joseph is in the power of position, there in the power of, in, in the position of weakness, uh, and they come to Joseph, and, and they think Joseph, I mean, he can kill them. <laughs> exact revenge. And he's like, oh, don't, don't worry about it. Who am I to do that? The things that you did toward me that you intended for evil, God intended for good. 
You, you can just chew on that verse for the rest of your life. Evil men took evil actions and they meant it for evil. And Joseph is saying, God wasn't like, Ugh, mm, I hope, nah, I, I can't step in, I can't do anything. He said, I intended it too. I intended for Joseph to be thrown in that pit. I intended for Joseph to be sold into slavery. I intended every time Joseph had to face jail time, when he was falsely accused by uh, uh, Potiphar's wife. I intended that, but I intended it for good because God's not the author of evil. Now, how does God intend an evil action but not mean it for evil? Well, that's why I said you can chew on that for a long time. The scripture makes it clear that that is what God does. Even when things happen to you at the hands of evil people, God uses that. That's included in all things, and he works it together to his purpose. He's not out there biting his nails, wondering about tomorrow. I gave him free will. I don't know. We'll just see what happens. No. You'll be everything God wants you to be in Christ because he wills it. Because he wills it. Look at the big words that he uses. Verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Listen. <laughs> I didn't, I, I, I mean... A lot of Christians will say, I, I don't believe in predestination. I'm like, it's, I mean, it says predestination. So someone who really is faithful to Scripture never really says, I don't believe in predestination. That's not the word that hangs us up. What does predestination mean? It means what it means. And everybody has to admit that. It means that before you got there, you were set to go there because God said it. Okay? That's not the debate, actually. We say people argue about predestination. Are you, do you believe in it? Do you don't? That's completely misunderstanding the argument. Every Christian should believe in predestination. And those that are, read theology and read the Bible and understand the sides and understand the arguments would not tell you that the debate is about believing predestination. The debate is foreknowledge. That's the debate. So one side you have Christians that will say God predestines according to his foreknowing, meaning he knew what you would choose beforehand. He looked down the corridor of time. He looked at his crystal ball. He gave free will, but he knows how you're going to use that free will. And because he can predict it, he predestines it. The other side would say, well, no, that's not what foreknowing means. It doesn't mean that he looks down the corridor of time to see what you would do and then takes an action. Because, first of all, that would break... The pattern here, God takes an action and then something happens. Not we take an action, oh, he saw it ahead of time, and then he takes an action that doesn't really mean anything anymore. He predestines it after you destined it with your choice. That, that undoes what Paul is saying. The second thing is that that's not what foreknowledge means. Sometimes in Scripture, like a couple of times, foreknowing means he saw it ahead of time. Most of the time, by far, it's not even close, especially when you hang out in the Old Testament, which I encourage you to continue to do. When you hang out in the Old Testament, foreknowledge is about a covenantal love that he has. I know Israel. I know Israel. I know, I know Lucas O'Neill. That doesn't mean he knows about the existence of the people of Israel. It means he knows them in a way he doesn't know everybody else. It's covenantal language. I don't have time, 15 minutes, to put up a chart and prove that to you. Look it up. Use a search feature and find the words 
foreknow, foreknew, foreknowledge, look them up, and just be honest with yourself. What's really happening here? God's prediction or God's establishing a relationship with people and using the word knowledge for it? Foreknowledge means I already decided to have that relationship with you. It doesn't mean I looked ahead and saw that you'd have a relationship with me, and I was like, cool, clicked my heels, and then I, I locked it in. I'm not ready to just rest my case there. I just wanted to explain how those verses, those words, I think should be handled. But here's the purpose of all of it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus you know, we're adopted into this family, and our eldest brother, the one who's the heir of all things, the one who's in control of everything, the one to whom all rights and property and title and everything goes to, is our eldest brother. But under him, we are all brought in too. So Jesus is made prominent in all the things you experience. And as you're being conformed to his image, he's getting this glory and this preeminence. He is exalted in people that are, look, let's be honest, we're wicked, we stray, we're broken people. We're not called because we're awesome. We're called because we're not. And when God makes us great, he gets the glory. And so Christ is at the top of this uh, entire uh, transformation of people. And he is the firstborn, not alone, but among many brothers and sisters that are brought into this. That's his purpose. And God isn't doing it by guesswork. He's not doing it by looking into the future. He's doing it because he wills it. Verse 30. Verse 30 has been called a, a golden chain. Now watch this stacking effect. In my mind, it just eliminates all, all doubt as to what he means by he predestined us. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're like, I thought we get glorified in the future. Usually the word glorified means our full resurrection bodies and all of that. I think that's true. I think that's how Paul is using it. I think he puts it in the past tense because he's like, it's, it might as well as be done. That's how sure it is. And look at the chain. It's like when you flick the first domino and the, sec- the first domino hits the second, hits the third, hits the fourth. Like once you start that chain, it happens. If you pull any of, any of the links out, the chain falls apart. The ones that he predestined, he also called. Those that he called, he also justified. He makes them right before God. And those who he justifies, he makes right before God, he also glorified. Glorified is the end. Predestination is the beginning. Now, from our experience, the beginning feels like the call. We're called. But Paul's saying, before you were called, something else happened. See, that, that's why it's backwards to say, he looked down the corridor of time, saw that you're choosing him, and then he called you, and then he predestined you. That doesn't make sense. He predestined, then calls you, and when he called you, that's when you were made aware of the plan. Before he called you, you didn't know what was going on. Think of Abram. Abram was this dude floating around. I'm not saying he was a bad guy, a good guy. The Genesis doesn't tell us anything really about Abram. He's a random dude floating around out there, and God is like, you, I'm calling you, and I'm going to start a nation. What? Nothing about Abram decided to follow God, or he, he, wanted to, he was calling on God, and God was like, okay, let me call you. What did Jesus tell his disciples? I chose you. You did not choose me. 
wait a minute, you said follow me, and I made the decision. He's like, you made the decision on the heels of me calling you, brother. You'd still be fishing. You'd still be collecting taxes. And I plucked you out. And what Paul is saying is before that call, God did an action. That's what he terms predestination. And this chain means that he does it all the way through. God wills it. He wills that you be. And he wills it all the way through to the end, all the way to glorification. That's amazing. That is amazing. I I encourage you. You know, there was a time where I I believed, you know, you can lose your salvation. I believed, you know, so-called free will. If you're into Arminianism versus Calvinism, I was a full-throttle Arminius. I went to Moody. I was arguing with everybody. I thought I was pretty good. You know what changed my mind? Reading the Bible. And I, I don't mean that to be facetious. I didn't read Calvin. I didn't read John Owen. I never heard of the dude. To me, Calvinism was like a bad, that's a bad, those are bad guys. I just kept reading scripture, and it wasn't Romans 8. It was the book of Acts. It was the book of Job. It's all over the place. Reading through scripture in large portions, I think, uh, proves over and over and over again that God has this kind of sovereignty. He chooses, and even when Israel derails his plan, he's like, you derailed it, you kind of experienced some exile, but in the end, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do with Israel. Israel keeps proving that they can't keep it themselves. God keeps proving he's the one that's going to keep it. When he makes that pact with Abram, Normally, two parties would go in between those cut pieces to cut the covenant. He's like, no, no, you sit down because this covenant has nothing to do with your power. I'm going to walk through the pieces myself. Again, over and over and over again. Your destination is based on God willing it and God willing it all the way through. If it were based on our willing it, we all would lose. and We would have no assurance. But we do have the insurance, the assurance that we have no condemnation because he wills it, because he kicks off this domino effect, this chain in verse 30. The, he predestines, he calls. If he called you, he justified you. If he justified you, he will glorify you, and he doesn't lose. That's awesome. And so he takes these three different actions toward the believers. To, uh, not three different actions, three different ways of saying the same action. He calls us, he predestines us, he works everything together for good. And he gets us there. And that there, that destination is conformity to the image of Christ. That means that we have confidence in this salvation that we hold dear. And that means that once you're in, nothing can get you out. Nothing can separate you from it. And that's what the next paragraph is about. We've got songs based on it. We quote it all the time. But that's what he means. He means if the golden chain is true, if he predestines and the ones he predestines, he calls and the ones he calls, he he justifies. And if he justifies you, he glorifies you. That chain remains unbroken because God is the one that does it. He's the one that wills it. He creates the chain. No one can break the chain. That's the next paragraph. Check out what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, what's the result? What, what, how should we receive this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, quoting the Psalms here, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when he says nothing will separate us from the love of God, he doesn't mean a generic love. And we can argue about, does God love all of creation? Does he love all people? Does he call all people? There's a kind of call that goes out to everybody. Repent. Come back to the Lord. He's made a way through Christ. That's a generic kind of call based on a generic kind of love, but that's not the call and that's not the love that he's intending here. Because here what he means is what theologians call the effectual call, the call that does something in you. It's not just, please, Lucas, will you come? It's, Lucas, you're mine. You weren't mine, and pow, now you're mine. And he didn't do that at a certain age in my life. He did that before the foundation of the world, Paul tells the Ephesians. Now, that kind of call is is done because of that kind of love. It's not the love that God has generally for the creation. It's a covenantal love that he specifically has for saints, for believers, for the ones who are in Christ, to the audience that he's been writing to this entire chapter. And so when he says that we cannot be separated from the love of Christ, he means that those who have that particular covenant with God, that new covenant in Christ, you cannot be separated from that love covenant because God wills it. And because it's based on God willing it and not based on our performance, it is an unbreakable covenant, do you understand? It is not a breakable covenant. And the way he massages it and brings it home is, would God send his son to die on the cross to maybe save you? Would Jesus go through the passion, the birth, the suffering, all of that, the death, and then the amazing resurrection, the power that was displayed in his resurrection to hopefully save you. To start you on the journey and then sit and eat popcorn and watch and see if you'll finish the journey. I'm not making this up. This is Paul's argument here. He's not like, let me start a new topic. He's still on the same topic of knowing that you will be glorified, that you are glorified. And he does it on the basis of the gospel. The whole gospel is that God sent his son. He didn't withhold his son. And if he didn't withhold his son from you, which costs the most, which is the most difficult thing, to sacrifice his own son to get you in, what wouldn't he do to keep you in? If he did the craziest, most unbelievable thing to get you in, why would he then just not supply you with what you need to keep you in? That includes the Spirit's intercession. That includes Christ's intercession, he just said. Christ intercedes for you. You remember when Jesus told Peter, um, you know, Peter thought he was hot stuff, and he's like, I'm going to 
charge the hill with you, and I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to do all this stuff. He's like, man, for, after calling him Satan, uh, you know, that's satanic. Uh, he, he tells Peter, uh, Satan wants to sift you and see what you're made of. But I prayed for you so that you'll survive that. Think of what Jesus is telling Peter in that instance. Satan wants to sift you and see what you're made of. And you know, if I don't step in, you know what he's going to see what you're made of? You're full of baloney. That's what you're made of. You don't have what it takes to stick with it. You don't have what it takes to charge the hill. You don't have what it takes to bear a cross. Peter, you think all that gusto, all that youthful energy is going to get you through? You're a coward. And you're weak and you're frail. The difference in your life, Peter is I'm praying for you. And what I pray for, I get. That's the assurance. That's what Paul just said. He said the Spirit prays according to the will of God, and then he tells us that Christ intercedes with us. And if he didn't withhold Christ on the cross, why would he withhold anything that Christ is asking for for you? So who is there to separate us? No one and nothing is there to separate us. He didn't spare his son, verse 32. And so because he didn't spare his son, he's going to graciously give us all things at the end of verse 32. Not all things like the car you want, the new house that you want. See, that's still in the lane of the flesh. All things that pertain to that ultimate good of conformity to Christ. Whatever it takes to conform you to Christ, it's yours because Christ asked for it and he purchased it. And if Christ purchased it on a bloody cross, and resurrected out of a hollow tomb, he'll get you everything else. Why wouldn't he if he did the first thing? That is amazing. No one can bring a charge against you. Who's going to go up to God the judge and say, accusation, when God the judge is the one that justified you? He's in charge. He's the one ultimately who was offended by your sin, and he justified you. So who can bring a charge? Who can undo the prayers of Jesus Christ, who's interceding for us at the end of verse 34? He shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now, he lists a lot of things here. It's hard to think of anything that doesn't make it somehow into this list. Tribulation, we could just put a period right there. Just any kind of tribulation, trial, sorrow, challenging event, a sickness, a death in the family. The most painful thing that you can experience any tribulation, any distress, persecution from the outside, the world hates you, your parents hate you, you got married, you, neither of you were believers, now you're a Christian, your own spouse hates you. All these years you weren't a Christian, then you converted, now your kids hate you. Any kind of persecution, opposition, distress, tribulation, even if you're robbed of food, robbed of clothing, robbed of safety, the sword is at your neck. No terrorist, no principality, no ruler, no government can separate you from this covenant. If you've ever wondered, if I had a gun to my head and I was asked to deny Jesus, would I make it? If you're a believer and you're in Christ, the answer is yes. Why? Because in that moment, that hot moment with the gun, the sword put to your head, you're just going to, you're so courageous. If you're thinking that way, you're just back in Peter's shoes, sandals, strap, whatever he was wearing. The real answer is, God will give me what I need 
to not deny him in that moment. Not me. God will give me what I need because I believe even in that moment, the Spirit is interceding for me, Jesus is interceding for me, and I'll be not like myself, the coward that I am. But I'll be like Christ, the conqueror that he is. Because God wills it. He finishes what he starts. And so he quotes the psalm, we're being killed all day long. We're, we're like sheep being slaughtered. He's saying, remember when Israel felt that way? The nations were just pouncing on them and they called out to God. They trusted that God was going to get them through this. Because God finishes what he starts. So therefore, verse 37, in all these things we're more than conquerors, not because we're hot stuff, but through him who loved us. Jesus Christ is the one who leads us in it. Jesus Christ is the one who makes it effective so that his death and resurrection isn't a, doesn't produce a maybe or I hope so. I mean, if somebody asks you, are, are you, are you going to heaven? And your answer is like, I, I hope so. Like, read Romans again. You missed it. It's yes, and that's not arrogant. We're robbing glory from God when we say maybe. I hope so. I don't know. Because you think you're giving a humble answer. I think, I don't know. I could say. It's not humble. It's arrogant because you think it's on you. It gives glory to God when you say, oh, for sure I'm in. Why? Because God does what he does. God finishes what he starts. And I know that about him. I know about myself. I won't finish it. But God finishes it. And our hope is in God's action Nothing here in this paragraph about our ability, our stick-to-itness, our grinding it out. There's nothing here about that. Now, there are other passages that, hey, be diligent, keep going. But when he's talking about how it is that we make it all the way, there's nothing here about our uh, fortitude, our wherewithal, our ability to just push ahead. But everything that he focuses on is God's action and then he talks about all the things that would threaten it, all the things that would rob it. Look at verse 38. He returns to, he gives another list. I'm sure, not hopeful, not maybe. There it is again. Knowing it, I am sure that neither death nor life, again, he could just put the period right there. What happens if you die? To die is gain. You'll be with Christ. Okay, forget dying. What if I live, but I live such a difficult life, I might lose my way? Even in life, even in the tribulation-filled life, even a distressed life, you'll make it because it's God's action. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, he's thinking of the most powerful entities that he can think of, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. I mean, again, today I'm in, but what about tomorrow? He's like, present, tomorrow? <laughs> Things that are now, things that haven't come yet. God's covered it. No power, no height, nor depth. This is the original, ain't no mountain high enough. Verse 39. Nor anything else in all creation. I mean, he's, he's covering all his bases here. There is nothing in all the world that will be able to separate you from the calling, predestining, conforming to Christ love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, quickly, we can think, I can think of a common objection, which would be like, yeah, nothing outside of myself can get me away from the covenant. But what if I myself get myself out of the covenant? 
like a tribulation can't do it, and distress can't do it, and a ruler can't do it, and an angel can't do it, and terrorists can't do it, the government can't do it, my parents can't undo it, but what if I undo it? Now, the first response to that is, are you in all creation? That would be the first response. He's covered all his bases. But more importantly, think about when Scripture talks about people who fall away. And Scripture talks about outside influences instigating it. Now, you can bookmark this for later. The parable of the sower in Matthew 13 and Mark 4. Very similar. The parable of the sower, you remember, Jesus said the sower sows seed. He sows the word of God. And it lands on different kind of soils. You remember that? And there's four different kind of soils. And the first soil, the birds come and snatch the seed away. It didn't even get to start growing. The second and third soils, it did get to start growing. But the soil was too rocky in the third soil, and the plant didn't have any place to really shoot its roots, and it never really got rooted, and it just got scorched up by the sun. The third soil was surrounded by thorny weeds, and the precious flower root couldn't hang with the thorny, thistly weeds that were surrounding it in the soil, and it choked out the life of that flower, and it didn't make it. Even though at first you're like, look, it's budding, what a cute flower, and then it dies. It gets choked out. The fourth soil is good soil, and it works. And the soil plant, the plant grows, and it bears fruit, and it's crops, and it's the kingdom, and it's beautiful. Now, what Jesus is saying is those first three soils are people who hear the word of God, and they don't make it. Some people don't even start out. They hear it, it bounces off. And when Jesus explains that parable, he says that's the activity of Satan. Didn't Paul just cover that? No angel, no ruler. Satan comes and he snatches seed. You're gathering around your table. You finally explain the gospel to your lost uncle. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. And just nothing. That might be satanic activity. One of his minions, something. They, They block. They blind. The second and third soil also have outward activity. Because Paul explains, or Jesus explains that that rocky soil is um, the, the heat that, that comes with persecution and trials. Tribulation and distress. Persecution. The third soil is the same. The deceitfulness of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the allure, the allure of the world around them, and they're like, oh, it's just, the grass is just greener on the other side of Christianity, so I'm, I'm jumping ship. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is there's always an outside force that instigates bailing on Christ. No one ever just in a vacuum is like, you know what, things are awesome. It's always something. It's like, you know what, people in the church are hypocrites. They were surrounded by hypocrites, and so they're out. People are like, ah, you know what, I just, I'm just not into it anymore. The world has changed. The culture has changed. Christians are stuck in the past with their views on sexuality and views on gender and views that they're just stuck in the past. That's the conformity to the world. That's the allure of the world. I'll lose my job possibly if I get this. Oh, but if I, if I told the party line on, on sexual ethics, a progressive view of genderism, I can get this other job. There's always something dangling in front of you to get you out. And so Paul's saying that, um, and again, that's how it started in the garden. Eve wasn't just like, you know what, forget God. It, Satan came. It's still Eve's fault, but it's instigated by something outside. And Paul is saying, nothing will instigate you out. You will stay in 
if you're really in, if you really understand the gospel, this is not about people who go to church. This is not about people who just said a prayer one time. This is about people who understand Christ is it. And your ultimate goal, your ultimate desire, your final desire in life is to be conformed to Christ, whatever it takes. And God is like, good, you're a Christian. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I put that desire in you. I called you, and I'm going to get you to the destination. We might think, oh, you know what? What I don't like about that, Pastor Lucas, what I don't like about that is it feels like it gives us a license to sin. Because if I'm in no matter what, I can do whatever I want, to which I would respond, have you read Romans 1 through 7? He just finished, didn't he? He just finished explaining that. You're not rescued from slavery to sin so you can go back to slavery to sin. If your mind is thinking, huh, I get a free pass to go do the things that enslaved me before, you're probably still a slave. You hate that stuff. You see how it destroys your life. You see how it separated you from God, and God rescued you from that. And out of your gratitude, you lean into a new life. That's what Paul just finished explaining. Now, here's what I want to leave you with. Some of you might be on the fence. I'm not sure about this doctrine, whatever you want to call it, this doctrine of assurance, eternal security, once saved, always saved. People call it that, that don't like it. And what I want to say is I don't want to pick a theological position because of the fear I have of collateral damage or fallout. I don't get to go, let me see what's true. Which one would be better in my life? To, have, to be unsure? If I'm unsure about my Christianity and my salvation, I think I'll behave better. That's the wrong way to go about theology. How do you go about theology? What does God say? What does God say? Not what do I, I don't, not, I, don't, I wouldn't pick that. I think that, that that just leads to this and that. It is not your job to figure out what theology leads to what. Your job is to read scripture, and if it's encouraging you, be encouraged, Christian. I will get you there. The wilderness is scary. The wilderness is dark. We just finished the book of Numbers. You see how many times Israel disobeyed? They never would make it through the wilderness if God didn't provide everything they needed every step of the way. So our response, brothers and sisters, is not to leave here and go, you know what, let's go sin. The response is, you know what, I don't have to sin. The sin that's knocking on my door and the things that threaten to tempt me, I don't have to cave to those temptations. I, I can worship God better tomorrow than I do today. Not because I'm great, because God is great. And the gospel is true. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit are interceding for me. And we cling to that hope and grow in it, unlike the first three soils that die. We grow because God wills it, and he wills it all the way through. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the hope that we have in your grace and your saving action toward us. And Lord, as we close uh, in this song, we want to focus on you, your power, your greatness, your majesty. And we want our confidence and our assurance to be based on who you are, what you do, what you decide, what you will, and not on our own flesh or abilities, because we'd never make it. And so we sing this song praising you with assurance, not out of arrogance, but out of praise and all the boasting rights that belong to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?